Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on your Times Radio app. It's our third birthday on Times Radio this week, so if you haven't yet listened to it on the actual radio, why not give us a go? Right, coming up on today's episode is Absolute Cracker. The Times Radio focus group is convened. James Johnson, former number 10 pollster, is in the hot seat. I'll be honest, it's pretty bad for the Tories. Possibly one of the best we've had for Labour. It's a must-listen. That's coming up in just a moment. But talking of must-listen, we kick off with these two. In a world of politics without the boring bits, get ready for blockbuster debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. There's a slight frown there from Henry Zeffman. A slight frown at the uh, Scooby-Doo music. The Sco- you are no, the Scooby and Scrappy that's of just news my analysis. Face. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I believe both both of the live-action movies from the early noughties are severely underrated. Are they? Yeah. Any political... I think so. I mean, I haven't seen them since I was any, about eight. But... Any political <laughs> trivia connection with Scooby-Doo you want to offer us? No, but give me... Danny? Well... It's extraordinary that you would describe the live-action movies, because of your age, as being the sort of canon. <laughs> no, no, I also saw the cartoons, of course. <laughs> of course. Your go-to. Uh, no, and we should uh, thank you actually because it was your knowledge of Wallace and Gromit theme tune music which prompted us to do an interview with John Knott last week, so. which I'm sure is not a sentence he'd have envisaged <laughs> happening 30 years later when he was Defence Secretary in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we had him on, and apparently his, his son's made an enormous amount of money. He also wrote the music of Peppa Pig. Oh. So we are. Didn't know that. Oh, well, I didn't know today. Anyway. You can listen back to that on the uh, elsewhere on the Redbox podcast. Uh, right, let's talk about state intervention. Danny, there's a lot around about food prices and the government keeps convening summits and round tables on food prices. Uh, and people want something done about that. People want something done about mortgages. And in part, they've only got themselves to blame because they did intervene in energy prices and eat out to help out and furlough and so on. Is it possible to put the state interventionist genie back in the bottle? Well, it's interesting that when, you know, when the economy is relatively stable, it's much more easy to argue, you know, relatively stable and and growing and prosperous, it's much easier to argue against all forms of intervention. Uh, And now the Conservative Party is facing a much more difficult question, which is what to do when people are facing real hardship. And it's also uh, facing that question at the moment when it's changed its coalition. So it no longer represents merely the, you know, the, the kind of most prosperous quarter of the electorate. So uh, the the during the 1980s, it was possible to take the hard line on unemployment, partly because conser- it wasn't Conservative voters in Conservative areas who were being unemployed. Um, now, um, you know, particularly when it's mortgage uh, difficulty, but in all areas, it does press on Conservative voters and therefore Conservative MPs um, make an issue. I've never been personally, anyway, an, an economic libertarian. I do think you have to be careful, though, about setting up schemes of intervention that are very difficult to get off once you're on them. You're quite right using that analogy of the genie in a bottle. Once you've established that you're going to help in certain ways, you end up not being able to reverse that. The thing that we have to to face is that some of these problems that that are in the world are simply ones that make us poorer. And while we can 
take money from some people and give it to others and may have to do so. What we can't do is somehow magic our way to, uh, to, to everyone being better off and the problem going away. It just doesn't. Somehow there's pain that has to be absorbed by somebody because the fundamental situation is we're worse off. So then we have to decide, well, who can that be? And clearly that then leads you into the field of how progressive a tax system should be, um, which is also a difficult problem for Conservatives. Mm. Um, Henry, it was interesting. One of our colleagues said yesterday, it's all a bit sort of David Cameron-esque, if in doubt, convene a summit. Uh, so government, government identifies food prices are a problem. Let's convene a summit, a round table, we'll bang heads together. But then once that's been in the news, people expect at some point the, their weekly shop's cheaper. And that, that's not happening. Well, look, I think, I think the convening of the summits and all of that is actually an inevitable consequence of the government having implicitly and to an extent explicitly decided that they don't want to intervene in the mortgage market or provide particularised support to people on mortgages. I mean, there's a, partic- there's a particular political dilemma for the government here and I and I or rather for the conservative party here um and I'm not quite sure which way it cuts but unlike furlough where the economic devastation of the pandemic was actually incredibly widespread across society of course mortgage holders are a more specific group although still of course quite a large group not as large as they would have been um a few generations ago and while there are certainly some Conservative voters, probably a fairly sizable chunk, who now own their homes outright. That group of um, mortgage holders who, who are going to really struggle probably are quite an important core of the Conservative coalition because they've managed to get on the ladder. They're not the group who are so angry and, and left behind by, by what's happened in the housing market that they can't even approach the first rung. Um, so they might be on course to become the Conservative voters of the future. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if Rishi Sunak can't find a way for them to feel like he's doing all he can for them, then I think he's in potentially even more severe electoral trouble than I think the upshot of this conversation is that he actually is. You know, what we're groping towards is, is it is what it is, right? If, right. You, if, if you have high interest rates, they're, they're being put up for a reason. One of the reasons is to try and squeeze inflation out of the system. And you, you can't buy it off. Right, you, 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 you. Somewhere along the line, someone has got to pay for it, and of course, in the end, probably that will be mortgage holders because of the yeah, nature yeah. of the who of who they are. So the money will just go round in a circle and come back from the same people, probably. And actually, the, the specific thing about mortgages, unlike some of the other interventions that they have made or have resisted so far, is the the whole point of that the, the, the people feeling the squeeze is literally the point. It's not an unintended yes. consequence. People feeling the squeeze, reining in their spending to bring down inflation is the point of... Yes, going although, on. you know, but that it's important when, having, when saying that, because that is definitely correct, to say that doesn't make it any easier for no. all the people that have to do it. And, um, you know, we're talking about it merely in political terms, yeah. but obviously, you know, because that, that was the kind of uh, the, the way we entered into the topic, but it, it has to be noted this is extremely difficult for yeah, lots yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly the same as the situation that produced the 1997 election defeat, which above all other things was caused by negative, the negative equity problem, yeah. um, which, which was a similar issue. Um, what happened over the ERM when people's interest rates and their mortgages went up in that way, the Conservative Party never recovered from that. But what's so striking is that we are talking about inexorable economic forces which are, in part, 
if not in very large part, out with the government's control. And yet Rishi Sunak's messaging, I was at this IKEA warehouse in Kent last week where he bounced in and said, I'm 100% on it. And then he repeated that on the BBC on, on Sunday, you know, I'm on it. My government is going to cut inflation in half. And I, and I think there's a real political risk there, which is that Rishi Sunak is setting himself up as the person who can solve this when actually, you know, a lot of the implications of what the government is doing or not doing is that they know that they can't and they need to wait for yeah. the bank to do its work. There's no point in him saying that it, he can't do anything about it and he's well, not course. on it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, ju- I just, you know, so there's there's a famous study, which I, I often cite, which, um, in, in, where the Jaws film, the Jaws movie, yeah. that was a real incident, sharks uh, off the coast of New Jersey. And in the subsequent election, President Wilson did worse in places where there were shark attacks. He had nothing whatsoever to do with the sharks. He had nothing whatsoever to do with the handling of the shark problem. This wasn't any issue to do with him. It was an external event. But he did worse in the 1912... 16... So which one? Yeah, it was the 1912 election. He did worse uh, as a result of that... Um, as a result of that uh, disaster. So... Um, and it had nothing to do yeah, with him. Yeah. So here's an interesting... Yesterday when I um, I tweeted to say that the, the focus group was coming up uh, today and I thought it was pretty bad, pretty good for the Labour Party, pretty bad for the Tories. I said, uh, that Tory path to victory looks very narrow. Uh, and Danny, you've previously said that there is a path, but it is a narrow path. Can we try to unpack what is the path that... Rishi Sunak has to walk. What are all the things that need to yeah. go in his favour? I'm surprised I said that because the path, the path, uh, the path, and metaphor isn't one that I generally use. No? Okay, uh, but I, but I, but I, I certainly look. There, there's never a zero chance of any of anything happening. I, I learned that lesson when I once suggested there was a zero chance of Greece winning the Euros, and they did. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the 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 truth is, you there's never a zero chance, uh, but the chance is small. Uh, that would certainly be, uh, uh, but still right, existent. Right, yeah. However, it's now got smaller because the interest rates and mortgage problems make it smaller. So in my view, uh, you've already got a problem which you can't do anything about, which is they've been a, a pat in power for a long time. Elections are settled by what I call the peak end rule. What happens at or what is called the peak end rule? What happens at the peak and what happens at the end? Well, they've already had the peak experience, which probably was the Liz Trust government and the removal of Boris Johnson and, and then that yeah. experience. And so now what they need is a smooth path at the end. So the answer is they can do all right if the economy begins to come right uh, around the time they're holding the general election, which is next autumn, between next autumn and December, providing they go that long, which I think they will. And when you look at that, you think to yourself, that isn't very likely. So I've been you know, very bearish about the Conservative Party's election chances since Liz Truss was Prime Minister. Because when I saw that that was the peak, I think that was undoable. Um, the polls came and everyone sort of said, oh, they, these polls which are showing 20% Labour ahead by 22%, although of course that's, you know, what, not, not what will actually happen in an election. It really might. I mean, I think, I agree with all of that. I think, I think uh, the other thing, even if the economy does improve a bit... Uh, that the Conservatives need is is something to happen to the Labour Party. I mean, it's clearly true in the polling, and as you uh, had Ben Bradshaw tell you in, in his exit interview yesterday, Matt, that the enthusiasm isn't for Keir Starmer isn't what it was for Tony Blair in 1997. But it's also clearly true that he is not at all repellent 
yes. to large chunks of the electorate in the way that the Conservatives have been able to rely on Labour leaders being previously. And they will try their best to make him so, but I think that's pretty hard at the moment. So, you know, they, they, they you know, the, the Conservatives need something to... To turn, you know, they need that. If you the greasy or two thousand and four analogy, they need they need Karisteas to pop up at the back post with a header, and I, and I don't think it's going to. And actually, know, to extend this sporting metaphor beyond, you know, a lot of that was also down to the opponents along the way. And actually, if if Rishi Sunak's best chance essentially depends on a total implosion of the Labour Party, the, the Keir Starmer's. I was going to say Keir Starmer's arrested, but I mean even that at the moment doesn't necessarily. People, senior people being arrested is not a unique event in uh, British policy. But you know what I mean? It, it would require something pretty catastrophic on their side. It feels hard to know what are levers which are within Rishi Sunat's control. You know, he set these five pledges. We'll hear from the focus group in a minute. I mean, you know, they just don't think he's... They, they know now what they are. They don't think he's got any chance of meeting them. And I mean, nor does anyone else. I mean, it's, it's interesting that they know what they are. I mean, to, to some degree, that shows that the comms strategy is working. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's true, because a few months ago they didn't. Right, and he's been repeating them relentlessly, and of course that's what he should do. But the, the sort of broader political strategy, as I understood it, when he set those pledges at the start of the year, was not just for people to know about them by midway through the year, it was also for him to meet them by the end of the year and then say, look... I kept my word on those. Now here are five or whatever broader promises that I want to uh, enact over a five-year term that you should trust me with. But I don't know what the political strategy becomes. I don't know what he says in that speech at the start of January 2024 if he's met one or two of them and not he, met the other three. His whole point of choosing them was, uh, you don't think I'll meet them. Uh, he chose pledges, I think, that people didn't think he would meet, but he thought he would meet. That was exactly what he chose. Yeah. So the, the, the kind of the focus group, that's a feature rather than a bug that people don't think he'll meet them. But the problem is now that he might not meet them. Uh, in particular, that key pledge, which everyone thought was kind of easy pledge to make and we're now you know now acknowledged that it isn't. And you On inflation? To, yes. Yeah. He may well not meet that. And also, crucially, because there's been so much attention on it and mortgages and interest rates, people are now sort of aware that it's not really in his, in his gift. He basically picked a pledge that he thought would happen anyway. Uh, it's actually down to the Bank of England, and he's not going to meet it, and then he's going to have to get caught in this. Like, well, I set a pledge, actually, that wasn't at my uh, gift. Well, I'm not sure whether there's a huge... Uh, I'm not sure. I think the path was pretty now, if not existed there, but we'll... we'll I know um, that we've solved Rishi Sunak's no, actual dynamic. Be, be more like Greece... Uh, is possibly the best we could come up with. Right, up next, I want to, let's turn our attention to the Labour Party. Uh, here's an interesting question. When should, when will, when can uh, Keir Starmer do a reshuffle? Well, I don't know if it's a question of whether he's in need of one. It's certainly a fact that he's going to do one that is completely acknowledged. I think Keir Starmer might have even said that in public. I can't quite remember now, but um, it's certainly it's certainly been said. And you know, he, he last shook up his team, not just the shadow cabinet, but the front bench all the way down, in November 2021, a point at which Boris Johnson was unassailable and Keir Starmer's mission was a Neil Kinnock mission to get the Labour Party in shape for his successor to maybe win the 2029 general election. And now the calculus has changed and it's not just who can do a good media round but who might be a good Secretary of State in government. Obviously Labour are constrained by the fact they don't have very many MPs. Um, but nevertheless, within those constraints, there are moves that that, that, that people around Starmer want to do. However, um, Starmer, I'm told, is, is really scarred, not by his last reshuffle, but by the one before that, which was about five months before, where he tried to move Angela Rayner. She refused to move. The whole thing collapsed. It 
basically nearly collapsed his leadership. That was when he, he tried to demote her and she ended up with five job titles. All of which she still has. Yeah. And so that is one of the questions that needs to be settled in the reshuffle that is coming, which is, well, hang on, is, is there actually going to be a Secretary of State for the future of work in government? Is that going to be Angela Rayner? Is she actually going to run Keir Starmer's Cabinet Office? Um, he said in public that she's going to be his Deputy Prime Minister, but, of course, that can contain multitudes. I mean, at the start of Tony Blair's government, John Prescott was both Deputy Prime Minister and about running what is now about three government departments. At the end of Tony Blair's government, John Prescott was Deputy Prime Minister and was in not doing anything cloaking. else. Right, yeah. so you can do different things with that job. But yes, I mean, it, it, it's it's actually something that Labour MPs raise with me more often than anything else. They say, sure. do you know when the reshuffle's going to be? Do you know when? And it's not, that's not just out of self-interest. It's also <laughs> that a lot of them think it's overdue. They think that whatever but, the change Starmer needs to make, wants to make, he needs to make now. Look, th- there could be some significance to it. The, the last reshuffle really was very significant because it, it represented him choosing in his first... Uh, shadow cabinet. He'd basically chosen particularly a shadow chancellor in order not to tip his hand. The fact that we didn't really quite know who Annalise Dodds was 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 actually deliberate, right? He wanted us not to really know where she came from because he hadn't really decided which direction he was going to go in, which, you know, it's also uh, demonstrated by the fact that he chose Martin Ford to conduct the inquiry into Jeremy Corbyn, which he absolutely wouldn't do now. He'd probably have he'd choose somebody like Pat McFadden. You know, he'd choose somebody <laughs> on the right of the party whom, whom he could rely on to give him the answer that he wanted. So... Uh, I don't think this reshuffle will be as significant, with one exception, which is he has to make a decision about what to do with Ed Miliband. And really, that's the most, the biggest choice. Um, The reason why that's the biggest choice is that Ed Miliband is a serious and significant player in the Shadow Cabinet in terms of policy making and also an electoral indicator of what of what he stands for, um, and it may not be what Keir Starmer any longer wishes to stand for. Earlier on in his leadership, I think Ed Miliband was a symbol of of who Keir Starmer was yeah. at the time. But Keir Starmer is a changing individual. He definitely, you know, he, he definitely is. Um, and the biggest question of him is how genuine is that change? Um, to what extent is it electoral? To what extent is he just developing as a politician? He wasn't very experienced before. He's learning new things and repositioning himself. So, and I think we'll learn a lot from what he decides he wants to do with it. It's interesting. You, you say experience. Part of the problem he's got is that some of his colleagues would argue that the... Ed Miliband is a, is a problem in what that shows. Yvette Cooper, they would say, some have said, is underperforming as Shadow Home Secretary. However, they're the only two people in the Shadow Cabinet who've got any experience of being in Cabinet. And actually having people uh, with a knowledge of how to run a government department and all that is, is useful. That's why Ben Bradshaw's been brought in to try and, try and advise them. No, and I, and I think that is why, ultimately, I suspect, though it's definitely a live question, he'll keep Ed Miliband because while he may in some ways be an electoral disbenefit. People around Starmer believe Miliband is so experienced, not just his couple of years in cabinet doing the job that he would do in a Starmer government, i.e. energy secretary, but also his decade or so advising Gordon Brown in the Treasury. They think that experience is invaluable. It's an interesting one. I mean, I think it's one of those decisions that they will make that way given Starmer is 20 points clear in the polls. If he were five points clear in the polls, I think they'd be more wary about having Ed Miliband yeah. uh, be if part it, of it. If, if Ed team. Miliband knocks three points off, that doesn't matter if you're 30 points ahead. Right. Ultimately. Well, I would take that as a, as a symbol that Keir Starmer is relatively comfortable with, the, with yeah, yeah, Ed Miliband's yeah. political yeah, position, yeah. actually, uh, because if he wasn't, he'd remove him. He's pretty ruthless about other things. Danny Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman then. Of course, you can read them both in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the Focus Group.
You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, we are convening the latest Times Radio focus group to ask real voters for their verdict on how the government's getting on. Find out what really matters to people outside the Westminster bubble. As ever, in the hot seat was James Johnson from JL Partners, former number 10 pollster, and joins me now. Right, James, uh, let's start with our legal disclaimer. What is a focus group for and why is it different to a poll? So a focus group is a conversation with a small number of people, six to eight people. Um, it, unlike a poll, it's not intended to be representative of the population. So when we go out with poll 1,000, 2,000 people, we make sure that they're, they look the same in gender, age, all of these things. So we can say Britain thinks this. For a focus group, we're diving into a specific audience, not to get a representative view, but to dig under the surface of the poll. So, you know, today when we're saying things, we're not saying that everybody in Britain thinks this. We're saying here are some of the nuances in the way that swing voters talk about politics and talk about the next election. And so who are we speaking to? Where are they? And how did you find them? Uh, so unfortunately, it's not me going out onto the streets, uh, picking them, uh, picking who I, who I like. It's uh, um, we partner with a independent market research agency um, and uh, through social media, through uh, um, interviews, uh, through existing lists, um, we um, find people who are swing voters. So they are people that voted a mix of conservative and labor in 2019 and are now undecided about how they will vote. Um, and we went to three key constituencies, uh, Gedling um, up near Nottingham, Finchley and Golders Green uh, in northwest London, and Wolverhampton Southwest. All three Tory held seats, which could well be vulnerable come the next election. Right, uh, that is all the explanation uh, done. And we should remember that focus groups are used by political parties and number 10 all the time, both to see how things have landed, but also to find out what people are concerned about. And in some of the most striking ways, it's what's said in focus groups like Get Brexit Done, which ends up becoming messaging, which is then looped back uh, in political communications. They are completely vital to how uh, political parties approach these things. Right, let's kick off then. Uh, let's hear from the group on the nice, easy question that James always starts with. How's the government doing? Everything is just a farce all the time. There's always, it's always, there's never anything really positive. It's always negative. The last thing I can relate to maybe is the Boris party in again and all of that. It's always negative. So, yeah. Government at the moment, sum it up. Uh, mismanagement is the way I feel about it. You know, I, I don't have that much respect for them or what they say. And it's just disappointment, really. I don't massively follow politics, but. Like they're saying, you've disappointed. There's still things coming out now about parties and things that were being had while we were all staying at home and children weren't able to go to school or see families. I have no faith in anything really anymore that they say. Um, nothing's really ever followed through. I mean, I've always voted Conservative, but um, I'm very much in the mindset to change this time. Um, and give others a chance to, to do something better. I mean, the cost of living and all of it, it's just horrendous. James, well, let's start at the end there. That clip about, I've always voted Conservatives, but just, there's a sort of weariness to to what they were saying. Yeah, the, the, there is. And you can see that the trust has, the trust has gone. I mean, we have to remember that after that last election victory where some of these people voted Conservative, Boris Johnson stood on the street of number 10 the day after and said, 
I'm aware that some of you have lent us your vote. I'm aware that you've given us our trust for the first time, and we're going to do everything I can, everything we can, everything I can to renew that trust. And you know, four years on, um, that clearly has not happened. In fact, the opposite's happened, um, and that, that trust has been thrown away. I thought the really interesting thing there, Matt, and it'd be interesting to see whether it continues over the next few months of focus groups, and it's not just because the Partygate probe and the Boris Johnson Privileges Committee was back in the news, but parties and Partygate coming up again and again, even though Boris is no longer Prime Minister, that has dented a lot of their general trust and faith in the wider Conservative Party. And uh, yeah, it's sort of, I've been saying uh, all morning, this is one of the worst groups we've had for the Tories. I mean, clearly in the past, we've had a lot of anger. There was anger about Dominic Cummings and Barnard Castle, which I think got one mentioned last night. Uh, There was anger about Boris Johnson. and It's the sort of despondency, no faith, no respect, just disappointment. This sense of once people give up on you, that's even worse than being really angry with you. Yeah, and it also means that that's that's the thing. I think one of the things we'll see in this focus group as we play it out is there's not that overexcited enthusiasm for Labour. It's not the 90s. People aren't that excited about the prospect of Labour either. But when they are so disenchanted with the current option and they don't really see any big difference between the two, they say to us, well, we may as well take a punt and we may as well have a change. And that seems to be certainly this month where where opinion has, has has seemed to have settled. Okay, let's let's zero in on some of the uh, the details now. Uh, really good way to sort of get into the mindset of voters, which is difficult to pick up with uh, with opinion polls. Uh, asking the panel to sum up Rishi Sunak in a word: work cut out. I'm just sceptical. Probably use the word uncertain. I'd say wants to make a difference. Challenged, unrealistic. Middle manager. A challenged, unrealistic middle manager. It's not a ringing endorsement, is it, Joyce? It, it's not. I mean, it is worth saying that the, 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 this group did have more positive views of Rishi Sunak than they did the Conservatives overall, but it didn't really change that change their view much. And as you can see there, there's a lot of there's a lot of doubt too about whether he can execute their promises, whether he can get things done. I think it's fair to say that you know there the, the path to victory for the Conservatives has significantly narrowed. I think we've seen that in the polls over the last couple of weeks, and we also see it in this focus group and indeed other other other, other polling that's that's been out there. Um I think the path is still technically there. Um but you know Rishi Sunak sort of you know he's the the jungle is growing over the path. There are sort of Jaguars shaped like Keir Starmer attacking him. Um it's got quite significantly harder to to cut that path to the next election, I think. And Rishi Sunak's pinned all of his hopes on his five pledges. Next week, in fact, it's going to be exactly six months since he first unveiled his five pledges. Are they getting cut through? And do people think he's going to be able to deliver on them? Let's take a listen to what the focus group said. Was lower inflation one of them? So it's through the migration and stopping the boats and that. Maybe building more affordable homes. I don't know. Is that one of them? Reduced debt. And waiting times. When? What if it gets to the end of the year and no progress is made on these promises? How would you how would you feel then? Be an uproar, maybe. I'd totally give up if by the end of the year. I definitely wouldn't vote for them again. Not surprised. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Even though I'm not surprised that they won't, nothing will have happened with them. I just can't see how anyone else could do a better job, if that makes sense. Is someone ever gonna make a difference? I think I'd have more 
you know, my local shopkeeper going for it. I, I know him, speak to him, probably do more for me than anybody else. Put your local shopkeeper in charge as a ring. Well, well, let's start with the, for the, the positive, James. In the beginning of the year, Rishi Sunak laid out his five pledges. I'm not sure we got them all there, but we got most of them, I think. Uh, stop the boats, cut NHS waiting lists, grow the economy, halve inflation and cut debt. Uh, actually, building houses isn't one of them. So he's getting cut through, but they don't seem very confident he's going to meet them by the end of the year. And, well, one of them said so there's going to be uproar when he doesn't. Yeah, this is, I think, what you call bad cut through. <laughs> um, people are people know them, but but for slightly the wrong reasons. Look, uh, if if Rishi, there is there, there is you know, faith is so low in politicians and in the government that if these promises do get delivered, it'll it's still you know voters would be pretty impressed and taken aback. Uh, so in that respect, it's the right strategy for number ten. Still, the problem is, as you heard there, if they aren't, then that really does sort of sort of sort of defeat the entire point in their minds of of what this government is meant to be meant to be doing so i think i think we've said before matt um, uh, in terms of the focus groups and in terms of you know our commentary on them that if one or two of these were to fall short but progress is in the right direction that could still be a a, a big sort of um public opinion bonus for for rishi sunak but if we end up in a situation where they're all undelivered I don't think it's sort of, you know, rocket science to say that public are not going to respond very well to that at all. Um, well, let's now turn our attention to, uh, this is a good insight to what they think is going to come up uh, at the next election. We said it's a split. Some voted Tory last time, some voted Labour last time. When they were approached by the uh, the market research company, they said they were now undecided. So first of all, this is what the group said, asked uh, out of 10 Rishi Sunak's chances of winning the next election, zero being no chance at all in 10 out of 10, an absolute nailed-on victory. Let's take a listen. I'd say five. Sorry, yeah, um, five? Seven. I'm going to go for six. Not sure why. Four stroke five, Jimmy. I'd go five. I mean, 50-50 chance, that's essentially what it is. It may well be this end up being an insight into how uh, the British public aren't great at um, uh, probability, James. I mean, it's not terrible. No, and I think it, you know I, I do want to be really clear here. We're, you know, what we're not saying is this is not a '90s style situation. Mm. People are not sort of you know desperate to kick the Conservatives out. It's more that they just think, oh, you know, they're just they're just they're not doing anything. They're not on the right track. We may as well st- try someone else. There is that openness still to Rishi Sunak being able to turn it around. And the fascinating thing in this focus group is that there is still that impulse almost a natural impulse to want to like Sunak, to want him to do well. They're not tribal. But at the moment, they're saying they're not seeing that progress. They're not seeing that performance. Um, but yes, that, this is why I say the, the path does still exist, however narrow and perilous, um, because there is that willingness for him to do better. Um, it does, of course, require um, him to deliver on those pledges, though. Uh, absolutely. Well, let's now see uh, what they said when you asked them to mark out of 10 Kiss Starmer's chances of winning the next election. It seems fresh, new, you know, someone's got to do better. So I'll probably give, give him an eight, to be fair. I would say seven, potentially eight. He's going to get a bit of a protest vote against the Tories, isn't he? Yeah, I was thinking probably about an eight, probably reluctantly an eight. I probably would say four. It always, for me, in my opinion, I think Conservative always tends to take the lead. Um, during the election, so I'm, I'm not sure. Put myself down for a strong seven on this one at the minute. I say six, one above what I said for Richie. 
regrettably innate uh, <laughs> uh, is not a rigging endorsement. Or reluctantly, I think it was reluctantly innate, uh, James. Again, all, like you said, it's all pointed to they think he probably is going to end up becoming Prime Minister, but it's not like uh, it's hardly Beatlemania out there. No, indeed. I think Keir Starmer would take a reluctant eight, though, yeah. uh, um, at this stage. Um, look, if the Conservatives suddenly got themselves together, then I think we could still be looking at a competitive election. But that is the first time, really, we've heard words like new, fresh, uh, hopeful. Um, uh, so one lady said that Keir Starmer tends to talk about things more relevant to her than Rishi Sunak does. Um, someone else said approachable, fresh start. Um, and uh, if you're a leader of the opposition um, heading for an election... Uh, those are good words to be hearing at this stage. Remember, too, that a lot of people still don't really know who Keir Starmer is or what he stands for. Now, that can be a bad thing, obviously, if that persists all the way up to the election. But it's also possible that come an election, they pay attention uh, and indeed they warm up to him a little a little bit more. So yeah, still yeah. probably Keir Starmer's brand, no doubt but uh, heading in the right direction on the basis of tonight of last night's focus group. Right, James, let's turn our attention now then to uh, Keir Starmer. You asked the voters to sum up the Labour leader in a few words. Fresh, new. Talks the talk, but can he do the walk? I don't know who it is. I'll say hopeful. All I know is that he's taken over Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I don't know a massive amount, but he tends to talk about things that maybe interest me a bit more than... Sunak. Um, so perhaps they're slightly more relevant to me, but I don't know an awful lot about him. I just simply put no. Um, I don't really know much about him, so I can't really say anything bad. New, fresh, hopeful, all pretty good stuff there, uh, James. Although it'll be a sad day when we do one of these focus groups and we don't have one person who says they don't know who Keir Starmer is. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure we're going to see people flocking to Keir Starmer for an autograph, um, uh, or uh, you know, sort of posters up on walls and so on. Um, there's still that sort of uh, lack of excitement. Still, people not knowing, not knowing who he is. Look, l- l- this is just one focus group, and obviously, in the past, we've had some very negative and actually quite aggressive reactions against Keir Starmer. In our last focus group, somebody I think called him a slime ball. Um, so, uh, some caveats needed. Uh, but certainly, um, generally speaking, a better hearing for Keir Starmer in this in this group. I think probably his best one yet uh, since we started doing these yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, back in April 2020. And I suppose that you know the, the the views of the parties are not independent, and actually the sort of the sense of tiredness, uh, lack of faith, lack of respect for the Tories, actually looking to Keir Starmer, his newness, the fact they don't know who he is. Um, uh, starts actually having some value to it. But then you asked him, I think, um, what would what would a Labour government actually do? Could they name a Labour policy? I think that's the whole problem with Labour, really, in that they don't say what they're going to do. They just argue against the... They just tell us that the Conservatives are doing all wrong. I can't think of a policy that they've promised. Uh, sorry, I don't know. I can't answer that one. So no one was to increase, like, income tax within, like, the top 5% earners. And I, I don't know how they would kind of do something like that i have hope i just i mean the way things are at the moment could they get any worse so i'm for anybody having a shot i think you'll throw some money at the nhs something to do with the nhs james uh does this matter that people still don't know what a labor government do in fact maybe does it come as an advantage that when they do tune into a general election campaign keir starmer can announce all the policies he's had for ages and it'll all seem bright and shiny Possibly. The difficulty for Keir Starmer is, is that people think that his policy decisions at the moment, where they do exist, 
are based on what it takes to say to get elected. So if they do come out with lots of shiny promises, it might not turn turn their views around. I think that this isn't a problem for Labour unless the Conservatives get their act together. You know, if Rishi Sunak delivers his promises and then he goes into 2024 saying, here's my plan for the next 10 years for Britain, and there's some really sort of punchy retail offers that people believe because the promises have been delivered, lots of big ifs here people will notice, um, then uh, then it's possible that, that that then shines a light. At the moment, though, yes, they doubt Labour's effectiveness in office. Yes, they doubt, as that lady said, whether Starmer can really walk the walk. Um, yes, they sort of doubt their economic competence. Uh, but at the moment, the attraction of giving someone else a go outweighs those things. I thought it was striking in the group that the only the only concrete policy that anyone thought he would introduce putting up income tax on the wealthiest. Uh, I think he literally uh, that was one of his leadership pledges, which he dropped at the weekend. So that, I suppose that's the trouble. If you do keep announcing things which you then have to drop, you have to constantly update people's uh, awareness of it. Now, James, explain you did something which I think I vaguely remember you've done it. You've, you have done before on the pod, on the uh, focus group, but not for some time. The front page headline test. Explain, first of all, what it was, and then we'll hear what they said. Yes, we put um, two newspaper front pages, front pages of the Times, um, uh, uh, in front of voters. Uh, One had a big picture of Keir Starmer, one had a big picture of Rishi Sunak, and there was a large blank space where the headline was usually going. What we asked voters to do was to write down what they thought the headline would be six months in to a Keir Starmer premiership, and also six months into a Rishi Sunak premiership if he were re-elected. And the purpose of these kind of activities, if you just tell people, oh, what do you think it's going to be like? They answer quite literally. This allows them to try and think ahead so we can get a sense of really sort of what's underneath uh, their views and and, and expectations of a Labour or Conservative government. Okay, then. So this is what would be front page news six months into a Keir Starmer government. I've put long-awaited help for NHS. Starmer takes control of interest rates and they're they're on the um I don't know down going down I don't know why but all I can think is that he quits mine said now labour in force are things eventually looking up for Great Britain will I put new beginnings time for change I mean they're all very time for change though aren't they James yeah, you didn't get our chap in there who was very taken by the fact that Keir Starmer was waving in the clip. Um, <laughs> we got, he, got, uh, he got very bogged down in the fact he had his hand. We, we, we thought that would eat up possibly all, all of the time. Right, let's, before we go, let's, let's now compare that to what people thought of six months into a Rishi Sunak uh, victory. Something like, I said I would and I did. And hopefully things like inflation down at an all-time low. Inflation's still at a record high, I'm afraid. We're on our way to delivering, like... You know, it's like a stalling option. Rishi Sunak um, has been re-elected, even though he fails to meet all kind of five pledges. So, James, I mean, again, not not a huge amount of hope attached to the idea of uh, of Rishi Sunak, but just sort of, you know, maybe inflation might be coming down. Yeah, I think I think the difference between these two are that with Rishi Sunak, there's a sort of hope that he might turn things around, but they don't really believe it. But with the Keir Starmer ones, I thought that was the best news for Starmer in this focus group. The fact that they actually think that things might improve under him. That suggests to me that there's a strong undercurrent of competence to how they view Keir Starmer. Um, so you know they shouldn't get carried away by that, the Labour Party, um, because there are lots of doubts still. But those answers, you know, he would sort the NHS, he would sort interest rates. Those are sort of, you know, that's what you want to be hearing if you're a political party. Okay, James. Uh, let's uh, let's finish off then with a slightly lighter question. Given there's 
despair and despondency about uh, Keir Starmer, a lack of enthusiasm for... No, sorry, despair and despondency about Rishi Sunak, a lack of enthusiasm for Keir Starmer. So if they could have anyone else, anyone in the world as Prime Minister instead, who would they choose? Maybe uh, Martin Lewis for me. Oh, yes. Yeah. That would yeah. be really good. That would be a good one. He would get That's a really good one. Yeah. So there we are, James. Just put Martin Lewis in charge. He'll sort it all out. Exactly. Or that lady's shopkeeper that she mentioned earlier. <laughs> uh, it, right, so James, just finally, if you, were in, if you were in number 10 this morning, we've talked a lot about the path to victory and how it's narrowing and it's it's, it's hard to see the options. What, what would you be advising? You've done this, you did the job for Theresa May when things got pretty bleak. What would be your advice to Rishi Sunak right now to even try and hang on to a few of these people who've drifted out to don't know without switching to Labour altogether, who are so negative and despondent, I think is the sort of word to sum up the mood. Well, delivery is the thing. Um, And I think that's why we see a bit of that slipping, because people have had less faith in the delivery of those of those pledges. So, you know, however difficult it might be, I think, uh, you know, sort of shoulder to the wheel in terms of trying to make those make those happen. Um, I think, you know, getting some of that bold, exciting vision out there, I think them seeing the PM a little bit more at the forefront, there's no doubt that the PM not turning up to that privileges committee vote uh, has undermined a bit of that sense of his strength amongst these voters. Um, So, yeah, trying to find those moments and making sure that delivery happens. But look, uh, this is a a very tough, uh, you know, set of cards that uh, Rishi Sunak has to deal with here. And uh, it looks like for the first time, really, in our groups, um, that the patients might be wearing might be wearing thin, and time might be running out for him. Uh, it's going to be very interesting in the coming months whether that whether that continues or, or whether we see it go back to what we what we had before. Uh, well, James, just in the nick of time, uh, we've had well, we've had you know as ever the uh, these people are idiots uh, messages coming in. This is a particularly good one from Peter in Oxford. The political focus group appears to be made up of tabloid reading, poorly or averagely educated people who are so disengaged with politics, they're only informed by three-word slogans pumped out by the tabloids. Maybe a bit more balance when choosing the focus group members would give a better spread of opinion. James. Oh, we can't win coming, Matt. You know, we spend, you know, we had people saying they like Boris Johnson right up to the bitter end, and we got accused of being, uh, you know, just going out and selecting Tories, and now, now it's the other way around. I think all I would say is that um, uh, if the public, you know, firstly, a lot of the public are very disengaged, so that's called, that's called getting at the core of who the voters <laughs> are. Uh, and the second thing is, is that... Uh, if you don't like what the voters say, I'd suggest taking up that up with the voters rather than uh, rather, rather rather than, than me us. and you. I'd also to uh, very very gently point out if you take all of the poorly and average, averagely educated people, that's that's the majority of people. Uh, and um, I, I think if you're be, if your best defence is being sn- snoof, snooty about tabloids. I would still gently point out that even in the days of the dying print, uh, tabloid newspapers still sell more than uh, more than others. And certainly their websites are absolutely booming. So uh, getting to uh, those people and finding out what they really think uh, is really important. But anyway, thank you, Peter, um, for getting in touch. Uh, James, lovely to speak to you. Uh, James Johnson there from JL Partners. And we'll have another focus group same time next month, right here on Times Radio. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and catch me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on your actual time train. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.